Well, good morning. Welcome to each of you here today. I'm so glad to see you on this great day here in New Orleans, right? It is a fantastic day. You know you love Jesus if you're in church today because it's beautiful outside. And I know some of you are going, man, I, I tell you, this is like the perfect weather. But I'm also very thankful for those of you who have taken the time in our online family to commit a part of your life to growing in your faith, to blooming in your relationship with God. And to ask God, even in your life, to continue to move you forward. You see, we're, we're in a season, and we all knew it would come, where things that felt challenged, probably in the winter of our, of our lives and maybe even in our souls, it comes back to life. I've had this phenomenal thing happen in my yard. I don't know about you, but um, everything seems to be growing now. Uh, back at the beginning of our Bloom series, I, I trimmed back one of my Satsuma trees, and this week, I counted 33 beautiful little white buds that at the beginning of the week, they were just this little tight wound up white bud on my tree. And then I looked at them yesterday and they're all open, right? Um, that's a process of our life. And, and that's part of our Easter challenge for you, trying to help you get back to a place where you bloom in your faith and in your walk with Jesus and in your relationship with him and with your church. Uh, you received your Easter packet last week. Some of you may still have that in your Bible. Um, some of you may have received that when you walked in today. But there's a card in there. I want to highlight this um, specifically today. Matter of fact, if you have that with you, you might want to put your hands on it. If you didn't get one, we have a packet for you. We want to make sure everybody gets one. And, and Pastor Bo just explained our Easter challenge. All of that is strategic and by design to help us continue to grow in our faith. But this little card is very important for two reasons. Number one, this upcoming Saturday, April the 9th, is Easter Fest here at Calvary. And it's very important for two reasons. Number one, we're going to have a great celebration here on campus on hopefully a beautiful day, at least that's what they're saying right now. Next Saturday, this upcoming Saturday, April the 9th from 12 to three. And it's going to be an incredible time. Matter of fact, we've got lots of things for the children, the preschool, students, adults. Have you ever just wanted to come and hang out with your friends and, and really be encouraged at church and not be rushed? Well, that's an opportunity to do that this Saturday. But even beyond that, this card is a very simple way for you to invite someone in this Easter season to come with you and be a part of a wonderful experience that we as the Calvary family will have together. This is where you bring your friends. This is where you bring your neighbors. This is where you bring that person that you've been investing in. And you bring them to this opportunity with you as your guest this upcoming Saturday. And, and by the way, some of you, you've been saying, okay, how can I serve? How, how can I be involved? Listen, we're going to have a lot of food. Um, many of you know Corey Olivier. He's doing his famous jambalaya. That's going to be awesome. So we're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that um, particularly. But we're going to need some help serving the food. We've got crafts and activities for the children. We need some help volunteering and serving for that. So if, if that's your gift or you're looking for a way to get plugged in and active um, in your church, then go by our welcome desk in the back after church today. Sign up. Put your name down. Say, hey, how can I help serve this upcoming Saturday? But even in the midst of that, bring somebody with you. 
Bring somebody with you. Here is the reality, and there's, there's a very strategic purpose to this card for this upcoming Saturday and also, also for Easter. The reality is that in the world in which we lived, over the last couple of years, relationships suffered and people stopped talking to people face to face. People stopped spending time with people. You still see it. There's a little fear in our culture. And one of the greatest challenges for you as a child of God, believer, saved by Jesus, redeemed by the blood of Christ, one of the greatest challenges for you is that most Christians quit going to church or quit inviting people to church. More specifically, they quit talking about Jesus because they were talking about everything else. Here's a very easy, simple, applicable way for you to be active in your faith and ask your neighbor, a friend, just give them the card, invite them with you, and be a part of Easter Fest this upcoming Saturday. And that's the kickoff to Easter week as we get ready to celebrate really the greatest event of history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So I'm looking forward to really that whole week with you. Now get your Bibles ready. Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to pick up right there today. Um, I was talking about those blooms on that tree in my yard that I've kind of nurtured and, and babied and fertilized and pruned and gotten it ready for fruit in the fall. At least I hope so. You know, if, if none of the buds and the blooms get blown away by any of these storms that we're having, right? I've, I've been nurturing that because I, I want to see the fruit off of that tree because it's really good, by the way. So that's been something that I've been doing. And, and one of the things I noticed about those blooms is they're really beautiful. I mean, they're detailed. I mean, it's not just, oh, we're going to have fruit in the fall. There's a process there. And before you get the fruit, there's this little flower with these little details, white flower, little orange circles in the middle. I mean, it's just fascinating. Matter of fact, some of you in your yards, you've probably been fertilizing, poisoning your yards. Um, but there are these white and pink flowers that are growing naturally all around um, Technically, they're weeds, right? So you're like, oh, man, we got to get rid of them. But they're really pretty. Everything right now is coming to life. It's truly beautiful. Yesterday, I got to spend some quality time with my youngest son outdoors. And I noticed that everything has this light green hue to it. Like spring is here. It's blossoming. How do you know? Well, all of you are stopped up today. That's how you know. Everybody that has allergies is dealing with allergies and you're looking for your Zyrtec and your Flonase and all of that right now because, um, yes, yeah, spring has sprung. But there's something beautiful to it. There's something beautiful about the season that we live in. And I think for many of us, if we slow down and we pay attention to the beautiful things in our lives then that helps us navigate through some of those deep, challenging moments that we have faced. It helps us be able to look ahead and know Jesus Christ has life for you. He has good for you. He has good for his children. And he has that for other people. It's why we want to encourage you to engage with those around you and invite them to be a part, not only of church, but ultimately of the most beautiful experience that anyone can have. And that is the redeemed life change that happens when your soul is cleansed and saved by Jesus. Simon Peter talks about that. And today, I've called today's message, The Beauty of the Truth. The Beauty of the Truth. Do you know that there are two truths in our lives as Christians that are beautiful? 
two very foundational truths that always, they do not change. It is God's intention. These two beautiful truths are always the foundation of a healthy Christian. These two truths are always present in the life of a believer who is growing in their relationship with God. And when these two truths, these two beautiful truths are present in your life and you are focused on them, listen, you will grow as a Christian. You will change in your habits, beliefs, attitudes, actions. You will change because of the power of two truths that Simon Peter highlights today. Now, this passage I'm going to read today is, is one of those, just like we're memorizing a verse out of the first letter of Simon Peter. This passage today is one of my personal favorites that we're going to read at the conclusion of chapter 1 of the second letter of Simon Peter. Have you ever wondered, how do I know if the Bible is true? How do I know that I can believe the Bible? Some of you students, um, whether you're in the local high schools or, or perhaps you're even in college, this one beautiful truth is going to be challenged in your life. And it will always be challenged, watch this, by those who don't believe it. Naturally. If they don't believe it, then they're going to try to undermine it. And they're going to get you to try to question it. Students, that's been going on for a long time and it will continue to go on in your life. But the beautiful truth of what God's word is and how it is his truth for us, for life and for all things that God has planned. That truth as an anchor to your soul will cause you to grow always in your relationship with Jesus. And then the Bible points us very clearly to the second beautiful truth that Simon Peter highlights at the beginning of chapter 2. So we're going to read together 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. And Simon Peter says this, For we, now who is we? He's talking about he is a part of the disciples and the apostles, those who were around and with Jesus and who came to realize everything that Jesus said was not only true, it was a total fulfillment of the prophecies of all of Scripture. So he's saying, we have come to realize that. But he's not just talking about himself. As was written in 1 Peter chapter 1, he's also talking about the shoulders of all of the men and women of faith in all of the generations past who prophesied of who Jesus was, what he would do, when he would come, and how he would redeem his people. So he's saying, we, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Some of your um, Bibles will say fables or stories. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, look at this, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Say eyewitnesses. Simon Peter is saying we were eyewitnesses. We saw it. We didn't just hear about it. We were a part of it. We were a part of his majesty. For when, verse 17, he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. 
What was the utterance that they heard? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If you want to go back and do a little research on that, you will find that in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, Mark chapter 9, verse 7, Luke chapter 9, verse 35. Those three gospels record the moment of transfiguration, perhaps you know. And God speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As a matter of fact, Luke even says that the voice said, this is my beloved son, my chosen one in whom I am well pleased. In other words, there's not anyone else like him. It's Jesus, my son, and I'm pleased with him and what he's about to do. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So, what does all that mean? We have the, prophet, the prophetic word made more sure. In other words, it was all talked about in advance in the Old Testament that you have in Scripture. It was all prophesied. And Simon Peter says, now we have something more than a prophecy. We have more than just people talking about it. We had Jesus. It was real. That's what he's saying. And therefore, to which you do well, talking to us as believers, Christians of that day and today, we do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Verse 20. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Let me read that to you again. I think that's very important for you to know as a Christian, as a believer, um, as your faith perhaps is challenged, your belief in the Scriptures is challenged, as people try to manipulate Scripture for their own good, manipulate you for their own good, or to pull you down. The Bible says, know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. I don't know about you, but we live in a world where people go, well, I will read the Bible so that it will fit this. I will make the Bible fit my circumstance or my belief system. I recently heard someone say, well, you know, the Bible teaches this and this and this. And the person responded and said, um, that's not what the Bible teaches. And they said, yeah, it's the Bible. It's a matter of your interpretation. No, it's not a matter of your interpretation. Simon Peter says, that's not what the people of God wrote this for. Verse 21, no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now he sets that as the standard to speak about scripture. And then he says, what's going to happen when you hold on to that beautiful truth? Here's the second part, chapter two, verse one. Because of this, false prophets arose. They also arose among the people. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Say destructive heresies. Even denying the master. Say denying the master. Who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned or ridiculed. 
In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He gives a few examples. He's saying, listen, that will happen, but I guarantee you God's paying attention according to his word. And it will happen because of the examples of Scripture. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, because all of this is true, he's saying, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The second part of what he describes is the second beautiful truth that we'll see today. If you read the first part of chapter 2, and likewise, we'll follow up with the rest of it next week. Um, if you read that, you go, well, that's the bad news. No, it's actually the good news. Because the second beautiful truth that comes from knowing God's word and God's will and God's plan is that God has a plan to save people who will turn to him and surrender their hearts to him. What was that plan? His son, Jesus Christ, is Savior. And to turn to Christ, to surrender your will, to repent and embrace him is to receive the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God desires to save those who are willing to say yes to him. And therefore, the second beautiful truth that you and I have today that is always true of a genuine Christian is that there is this beautiful holding of the word of God that is used by God to reveal the beautiful gift of salvation through Jesus Christ that we receive. And those two things growing in the heart of a Christian will paint a beautiful Christian life always. So let's look at this today as we take these passages and highlight some of the lessons that we can learn that Simon Peter was teaching God's children then that we can learn from today. Here's your life lesson. The people of God bloom. We've been talking about what it means to be a church, to be rebuilt, to be reborn, to re be rebirthed in a season of life where things have been darkened and discouraged and challenging and how would we do that well we bloom and how do we bloom when we anchor ourselves in the truth of God's word that's number one beautiful truth number one anchor ourselves in the truth of God's word and we embrace his plan of salvation to anchor yourself to be grounded in the word of God and the power of his salvation as a Christian that is how you will grow that is how salvation becomes real. 
It is fed by the word of God. It is experienced through the salvation given through his son Jesus. And that brings to life in us the type of salvation that God has intended for his church. So these truths, as we talk about them today, Simon Peter echoes them. The first thing that I want to talk about with you today as I think about these beautiful truths in our life is that we are people who cherish the truth of God's word. Child of God, Christian, church member, person who says that you know Christ or that you want to know God, the number one truth in your life that must always be present for you to grow in your relationship with God is that you and I must be people who cherish, and that means to hold on to dearly, to grasp, to abide by, to seek to live by. We must cherish the truth of God's word. How do you know when a Christian has gone astray? How do you know when someone is struggling in their faith? How do you and I personally find those moments where we are not walking in God's will? We know because our lives do not line up with the truth of God's word. We cannot grow and therefore bloom as Christians if we are not walking in our relationship with God committed to growing in his word. It cannot happen. It is like the fertilizer to the tree that I've described or the soil to the seeds that you will plant. God's word is what will nurture your soul because it is the revelation of the will of God for his salvation and for our life transformation and the word of God is the way in which you and I bloom. People who cherish the truth of God's word, they become healthy Christians. They become followers of Jesus more closely. They understand God's ways in wisdom and truth. They're not swayed by the opinions of their culture or the time of the day. They, they realize certain truths about the truth of God's word that remain. The first one that I think is important that Simon Peter talks about and he references that the truth of God's word is timeless. The truth of God's word is timeless. As you have a personal copy, hopefully, of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, the truth of God's word is timeless. It represents for you, you are able to read an accounting of how God has revealed himself, his character, and his will to humanity from the beginning of time even till today. And yes, there are even treats in scripture to tell you what God is going to do even if he hasn't done it yet. It is a timeless treasure of God's revelation of himself. A consistent revelation throughout all of time that God is a loving God, a redeeming God, that God will rescue those who trust in him and that God has something else reserved for those who do not. It is constant. It doesn't change even though people change, culture change, agendas change. Your seasons of life will change, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. It's timeless. And how do we know that? As Simon Peter talks about Jesus and he talks about scripture, he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales. We were eyewitnesses of the glory of Jesus that has been 
proclaimed to you, and then he talks about through Scripture. Scripture, by the way, is a record and a revelation that people have recorded meticulously since the beginning of time. I'm asked this question uh, quite often. What makes our book different from their book? Or what makes this version of the Bible different from another version of the Bible? Or why do some books, why do some Bibles have some books in them and other Bibles don't have those books in them? And the revelation of God's word has been meticulously maintained by the people of God throughout all of generation. The early stories of the Old Testament, they were stories that were told throughout time before people would write these down. But we have, and you hold a copy of God's word, you have more manuscript evidence supporting the validity the truthfulness and the accuracy of the personal copy of God's word that you hold, you have more manuscript evidence for the Bible than any other book in history. Period. Just the New Testament alone has over 5,800 manuscripts that are recorded and compared to show that just the New Testament alone there are over 5,800 manuscripts, and that's more than the rest of the books of antiquity. And that's not even counting the other thousands of manuscripts supporting the Old Testament. Do you realize one of the oldest recordings in scriptures, fragments, manuscripts that bring veracity and truthfulness to what we understand about the meticulous process of preserving God's revelation to people comes from 2,000 years before Christ. Do you realize that like even then people were doing it? You know, scribes didn't do like we do today with word processors and, and lights and computers and, and fill in the blank, autocorrect. They didn't have that. So when they would write down, mostly by candlelight, right? So you may have your study or a desk or a place where you like to write or read, um, mostly by candles. When they did that, they did it by hand, on parchment usually in these early fragments of it. And when they were done, do you know what they would do? They would go back and count the characters, the words. And all of it to make sure that what they were recording and copying was exact and precise. Now, again, they weren't perfect at times like you and I are not perfect. You know, some people will say, well, why does one have this manuscript detail and another have this detail? See, the word of God is not infallible. It's not accurate. See, you can't trust it. People will point to that because they're looking for a reason to not believe. And therefore, if they're looking for a reason to not believe and to get you to not believe, then they're looking for a reason to justify all the other behavior that Simon Peter talked about. That's why people want to invalidate the truth, the beautiful truth of God's revelation of himself. These scribes, these people would record them by detail, by candlelight. And they, if they missed, for example, a character, the numbers didn't add up, they'd go back and start over. Now, would you do that? <laughs> you wouldn't do that. <laughs> we're too busy to do that. How do we know we're too busy to do that? Because we're too busy to read it. 
but not them. They actually knew, and Simon Peter recorded that for you and I, they actually knew that what they were recording was not only about them, it was about the prophecies and the fulfillment of God's will and God's Messiah that hadn't ha happened yet in their life, but it was going to happen, and it was that important for them to get it right so they would continue to pass on God's revelation of his character and God's will to save himself, to save people through his son Jesus. So there's this timeless truth about God's word. Hey, listen, I mentioned 5,800. Do you realize there's over 10,000 manuscripts written in Latin? So for those of you, perhaps you've gone to high school and you've studied Latin. Imagine 10,000 copies of the Bible written in Latin. And that's not to mention the 9,300 that are written in Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Coptic, and all of the other versions of the Middle East. That's right. They were spreading God's word through writing, and it was recorded. It's timeless. And what does it record that's timeless? The timeless truth about who God is and what God wanted to do. Secondly, Simon Peter helps us understand it was that important to the prophets. Matter of fact, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 10 through 12, if you wanted to go back and look, he says the prophets wanted so long to understand what they were talking about. Even angels wanted to know, but it was made sure and revealed for you. That's what Simon Peter would say in chapter 1, verse 10 through 12 of that first letter he wrote. So he's revealing the timeless truth that leads to the personal truth. Now you have to have the timeless truth before you can experience the personal truth. Because a lot of people today will say, oh, well, it's just personal to me. What's personal to you? Or they will say, well, I'm, I'm this type of religion or I'm this type of person. What does that mean? I mean, just because you believe you're a pink elephant doesn't mean you're a pink elephant. What does that mean? And what it means is Simon Peter gives this revelation that when you embrace the truth of God's word that is timeless, it then begins to change your personal life to line up with who he is and what he says. It's not just I have some generic personal experience with God. Some generic personal experience with God that is untethered to the revelation of who God is what God does, and how he intends to save people that is revealed through Scripture is bad gas. You having a bad experience or a bad revelation of something else if you have something untied to the truth of God. A lot of people have that, and they push that. And that's where you begin to find errors, and you begin to find all of the other character traits that he identifies here in Scripture. The personal experience that Simon Peter talks about is the one of the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's go to Luke chapter 9 for just a moment. What happens in Luke chapter 9? This is very important because people today are equally as guilty as the confession of Simon Peter that he gives right here in his second letter to the church. Simon Peter is actually confessing to the church in this letter... I made a huge mistake once in my life about Jesus. What was the huge mistake that Simon, he had a few, but what was the huge mistake that Simon Peter made about Jesus? 
It's important to know that story of the Mount of Transfiguration because what happens is Jesus says, Simon Peter, I want you and James and John. That's the core leadership team of the disciples if you look at Scripture. I want you guys to come with me to a special prayer time and I'm going to show you something. You're going to get to experience something that is going to help you understand who I am. So what do they do? They go on this mountaintop retreat experience with Jesus to pray. And while they're up with, there with Jesus before the garden, this is before the Easter experience, and they're up there with Jesus for this great revelation, what do they do? They fall asleep. <laughs> they're hanging out with Jesus, they get tired, and they go to sleep. And they wake up hearing voices. And when they wake up hearing voices, they see Jesus. And Jesus is transfigured. In other words, he's taken on this form of the resurrected Savior. They see that something special has happened here. And he's really looking like this holy being. And with him, there are two other people. Elijah and Moses. The scripture very clearly says, Elijah and Moses are there with Jesus. Now, if you're a good student of Scripture, what happened to Elijah and Moses? They died, right? They should not be there, but the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they see Elijah and Moses there in a transfigured state with Jesus. So they've had this return from heaven to be present with Jesus, and they're having this conversation with the Son of God. Simon Peter wakes up, and what does Simon Peter say? Jesus, it's good for us to be here. Let's build an altar for you. Let's build an altar for Elijah. And let's build an altar for Moses. Because they're really important in the history of God's work and God's revelation of himself. They were miraculous people in the history of God. So let's build an altar to worship them alongside of you, Jesus. And if we're not careful today as Christians, you will find yourself doing the same thing. You will find yourself building an altar in your life to someone that's important making someone else someone that you would pray to or worship or do something to serve. And in that holy moment of transfiguration, God says, listen, not a matter of opinion. The priest didn't say, the preacher didn't say. God says, basically, boys, you've lost your ever-loving mind. You must have missed the point. This is my son, Jesus. He is the chosen one. You listen to him. And right there, in that moment, Simon Peter's like, oops. <laughs> God just corrected me, right? And Jesus helped him understand, look, there are other people throughout the history of the world that have been a part of God's revelation of how he works and how he desires to save and who he is and how he desires to help his people. But they were just pieces along the process to get to the ultimate revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, how by, how, whereby we must be saved. The only one that God would say, that's him.
That's my son. And he's the one that you follow, period. Worship him, not all these others. He's the one that it's all about. That was a personal experience for Simon Peter where he personally realized Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the only one to be followed. Therefore, then, forward to your life today. Have you had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as the Son of God, your Savior, where it became personal? That's why we will say at church, or we will ask you, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because in this moment, Simon Peter had a personal encounter where God got his attention and said, Jesus is the one that is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He's the one that all the scripture is about. Moses was to support him. Elijah was to point to him. All of scripture points to him. He's the one. Do you have that? In that moment, it was deeply personal. Do you have a personal encounter with Jesus that way where you know he's the Son of God that saved my soul that's the power of the truth of God's word. It makes your relationship with God personal through Jesus. The third thing about scripture is that it's not only timeless, it's not only personal, but it's proven. It's proven. You only have to go to one verse. You might want to write this one down. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And the Bible says this, all scripture is inspired by God. Say all. All scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness so that the person of God may be equipped to do what? Good works. So that the people of God may be equipped to be able to be corrected, to be trained, to be reproved, to be able to be able to be guided into the truth of God's word. The word of God is proven over history, proven throughout witness accounts. It's why, by the way, your Bible that you would have, some of you will have another version of the Bible that will have certain books in it, and your Bible won't. And they'll be like, well, mine's better than yours. It's got more books. No, the reason yours has more books is that somebody along the way was like, well, that sounds pretty good. Let's include it. And the reason it's excluded from the canon of the Orthodox Church since early on after Jesus, the reason those books were excluded is simply because they don't have eyewitness accounts to them. They don't have someone that was within the circle that could validate that that person was a part of the community of faith, the disciples, the apostles, the prophets. And those books, when you read them, do not validate the entire history of the revelation of God consistently for what he would do to reveal his character and his saving will through Jesus. So some of your Bibles, perhaps, that you've been referenced, that I'm referencing or that you've looked at before, there's a sliver in the middle of some pretty cool stuff, by the way. I've read them. It's really interesting. I mean, Bell and the Dragon, what a great book, right? Maccabees, what a great history. And yet those things, number one, are not connected to someone that was an eyewitness person of the gospel event. Nor... Are they something that validates the overall revelation of God's character and his will to save people throughout history? And that's why you don't have them in your book. Isn't that helpful? And Simon Peter 
is writing to the church then saying, look, what you have, the truth of God's word revealed to you throughout history of his character and his will and his way to save, that is important because that is how the child of God will continue to walk personally in their relationship with God. Let me say this very clearly, though. I'm not trying to convince you because some of you today will go, well, I was raised a certain way and I believe this and all of that. That's fine. Listen, I've, <laughs> I've done more study on this than you care to know, right? So I understand that. I'm not trying to argue with you. I just have one very simple question. Are you reading it and applying it to your life? Because we could argue over details. My, my purpose is not to commit, convince you of details other than the fact that the word of God is the revelation of God's truth. It is a record of the beautiful truth of God. But how can you live out your life as a child of God if you're not embracing the truth of his word? So therefore, perhaps in this Easter season, even as a part of your Easter challenge, it's time for you to embrace the word of God as a beautiful truth in your life for growth. And if you want to use all the other details to validate the fact that it's real, you can do those too. All right, let's move on to number two. Because the word of God reveals the second beautiful truth. And the beautiful truth for us as the people of God is that we are people who embrace the truth of the gospel. The word of God reveals the beautiful truth of the gospel. You cannot have one without the other. Let me say that again because that will blow your minds for many of you. But you cannot have one without the other. If you have the word of God without it leading to the salvation of God, the gospel, then you're a Pharisee, you're a legalist, you're a lawyer, you're squabbling over details, but there's no grace, there's no salvation, there's no repentance in your life. The record of God's word, even Jesus said this to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures to and fro, trying to find the answer to your life problems, but you do not have it because you do not realize that the word of God speaks about me. Even Jesus said that in the gospel of John. It is the word of God that reveals, and Simon Peter says this very clearly, the history of God's work to bring Jesus to the world to save people forever. That's what the Word of God reveals. And to search the Word of God without having the revelation of the gospel in your soul is to be halfway a Christian, if there is such a thing. You could really just be religious, but not saved. And there are a lot of people like that. The Word of God leads to the gospel. Likewise, listen very closely. You cannot experience the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, without the revelation of God's character through his word. There is no gospel without the revelation of what God was going to do to bring Jesus. There is no good news. There is no salvation without God revealing himself through the word of God. What do I mean? If you asked anybody today, well, are you saved? Everybody wants to be saved. Just trust me. Every funeral I do, they're always wanting to go to heaven. Every one of them. And yet some people will say to me after a funeral, that person lived like the devil. You know, like there's just this reality that across the world, everybody believes in a better place. But that's not the gospel. 
The gospel is this reality that there is bad news in our world and bad experiences and bad people. And there are these moments where the brokenness of our world consumes people. And yet God cares so much that he would provide a salvation to those who would turn to him. That is what makes the gospel beautiful. It's not that everybody everywhere all loves God and we're all going to be in heaven one day. That's not beautiful. That's plain. It's beautiful when your heart is changed by the word of God, the revelation of the will of God, the great mercy of God, willing, willing, God's willingness to save you through Jesus, a suffering Savior on a cross. That beautiful truth that God would be willing to do that to change your life and bring you into his family, that's good news because we don't deserve that. But a unique way that God would provide for people of all generations to experience him, that's good news. That's euangelion, the Greek would say. That's the gospel. And what makes the gospel beautiful? What is the beautiful truth about the gospel? First and foremost, the beautiful truth about the gospel and people who understand this, they understand the power that we must accept required repentance. Repentance is required to receive good news. Repentance means that I am saying I was off. I was wrong. I was going in the wrong direction. And God showed me a better way through his word and through his son. And therefore, when God showed me a better way, I turned my belief system, my heart, and my actions to him. And I said, God, I'm wrong. Not you, me. I'm wrong. I'm going in the wrong direction. God, I repent. Now, why is that such a big deal? And how did I get that out of this section of chapter 2 when he talks about the gospel? Because Simon Peter shares the reality that in our world, there is this challenge of life and people and those against the word of God and God's gospel. There are those who would pull people away. And what's the number one issue that identifies those who are against God and those who are for God? What's the number one issue? Repentance. When God reveals himself to humanity, we either say, God, you're right, or people say, God, you're wrong. And if we say, God, you're wrong, what does that mean? We continue to go in our own direction because we think we are the center of the universe. And I'm not just talking about us today. This has happened throughout history. Read your Bible. <laughs> it tells you about people who repents and people who don't repent. And he gives four examples. The four examples are, as he talks about God not sparing angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell. When did that happen? You know when that happened? Well, that would be before time. But you get the first inkling of it when you read your Bible, the book of Genesis, right? Because who shows up in the first couple of chapters of Genesis with a plan to derail God's paradise? Who shows up? Satan. 
What was Satan prior to this event? What did he used to be? Well, if you read your Bible, you understand Satan was an angel of light. Beautiful in all of his glory. And yet he was deceptive in his light. And so God removed him from heaven along with all of those who were with him. And so he describes the angels who were with the, with the devil, cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness. Look at this, reserved for judgment. In other words, he's placed them in a place that's reserved for judgment. Now, is that what he wanted? No, it's not what God wanted. But what is it? It's a place reserved for judgment. And then Simon Peter keeps going and he gives another example. Very important that you look at where he goes throughout spiritual and human history. Then he did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. In other words, someone telling people to trust in God. Now, what's the story of Noah? I realize we're limited on time, but what's the sto story of Noah? I'm not talking about our student pastor, right? All right, he's got a cool story, but that's not the story I'm talking about. The biblical story of Noah is that Noah built a what? An ark. And Noah built the ark, and all the animals got on it, and, and like, yay, all of these people were saved. Wrong. Eight people. Noah plus seven others. Noah, his wife, three sons, and their wives, right? And then all of the animals. What happened to everybody else? Well, back in that generation, Noah said, hey, a storm's coming, right? It's going to rain. God is going to punish the earth because of their behavior. Nah, God loves everybody. God would never punish the earth. God? Who's God? God really said that? Prove it. How, how do you know he's going to do that? I mean, they've even made funny movies about that in our current generation, about how foolish it would be to actually believe that God would punish people because they wouldn't repent. But that's the issue. God reveals himself. And what would the alternative have been to the flood and Noah and his family and his son's wife's salvation? What would the alternative have been if the people just said, you know, God, you're right. We're living wrong. And we don't trust you and we don't believe you. What would the alternative have been? Well, I'll tell you this. Um, we wouldn't be reading about a flood and an ark. Even today, some people still question, did that really happen? Interestingly enough, other ancient records outside of Christian history have their own flood event. Why is that? <laughs> because it happened. But why did it happen? Because people wouldn't repent. Repentance has to happen for the gospel to take root in our hearts. Turning away from ourselves, turning to God. What's the third thing? He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, that's touchy, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. But what's the issue? The issue is that in Sodom and Gomorrah, those were examples in the ancient world of cities that had gone on doing whatever they wanted and whatever anyone else wanted. And when God listened, this is where people miss the point on Christianity and God's character and God's will. When God said, change your ways, they fought for their rights. When God said, you're off, they said, no, we're not. And basically, they tested him. And they failed the test. And that's what happens today is that anyone who wants to follow Jesus, repentance of who we are, 
must be at the core of the gospel. You have to acknowledge the bad news before you get the good news. He gives one final example, Lot. Why was Lot saved from the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah? This is a beautiful part of Scripture, by the way. Do you know who prayed and talked to God about Sodom and Gomorrah and asked God not to destroy them? Do you know who that was? Abraham. And Abraham worked with God. God, don't destroy him. I mean, if you could find 50. God, if you could find 20. God, if you could find just 10 righteous people, would you spare your judgment against them? Like if you could just find them? God said, sure, find them. You know who he found? Lot. And what did he do? He spared Lot and his daughters, right? He spared them. That's God's mercy and that's God's grace. Why did he spare Lot? Simon Peter says, because his soul was tormented in a broken world. Christian, have you ever felt tormented in your soul because of the gospel? Knowing that you're saved, but you live in a broken world. Knowing that you want to follow Jesus, but there are things that come against you that are deeply challenging to you. Then you can relate to Lot, a recipient of God's grace and mercy in the midst of a very hard time. And what was it that rescued Lot? Repentance. Matter of fact, there's an interesting detail in Scripture. Again, how beautiful is the truth of God's Word. Lot had a wife. Did you know that? And when God called Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, I want you to come out, and I don't want you to go back. I don't want you to look back. Lot's wife ended up as a pillar of salt as she looked back on the destruction of the city that she loved. Why? Because repentance means that when you turn away from what was broken and what was wrong and you acknowledge God, you run toward God. And Lot and his family ran toward God, but his wife was like, man, I kind of liked that. And when she turned around, that was it. It's a picture of repentance. Step one in the gospel, repentance. Step two in the gospel, the reason the gospel is beautiful is that people who are saved, they surrender to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, period. People who are saved surrender to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So when they repent, you have to turn away from something to someone, and to repent means I turn away from where I was, what I thought, where I was going, what I feel, all of that stuff. And Jesus, I turn to you. And Simon Peter says, this is the message that the prophets have been revealing for all of history. This is the message that was given to you. And it is this message that rescues the godly from temptation. It is this message of salvation that has been revealed through Scripture. It is this message that false prophets will arise and they will introduce to you destructive heresies. They will deny who? Deny the master, but not for you, Simon Peter says. Anybody that introduces something destructive in your life denies Jesus, their lives are self-destructing. If you see sensuality, if you see them maligning the way of the truth, if you see exploitation with tricky false words and greed, all of these point to their judgment, but not yours. You have been saved by Jesus. And a real Christian repents and surrenders their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, that's the final thing about the gospel. And I'll close with this. When you have 
understood and cherished the truth of God's word, which guides you as a Christian, and embraced that truth which reveals the truth of the gospel to repent toward God, surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord, then God's grace begins to transform your life. God's grace, not his judgment. Judgment was reserved for others, but not for the children of God. God's grace begins to transform your life. The salvation of God begins to transform your life. The gratefulness for his forgiveness begins to transform your life. His mercy toward our inadequacies begins to transform your life. His covering over the broken moments begins to transform your life. And you become more and more the person that God intended for you as his child to be. You reflect the truth of God's revelation of his character, his will, and his salvation throughout all of history. And you get to live that today. That is a part of allowing his grace to transform your life. And I've been asked before by people who give a lot of thought to salvation. Well, if he's a loving God and he gives that to those who are saved, why doesn't he give that to everyone else? Why is it that God would choose for some to receive salvation? Listen very closely because I don't want you to miss this. And choose for others to go to hell. Why would God choose that? And the answer is, he doesn't. He doesn't. He offers this wonderful, beautiful gift of the gospel, salvation. And people choose how they respond. And you either respond to embrace the salvation of God revealed from the beginning of time or you choose a pathway that was reserved for someone else and it's your choice the beautiful truth of God's word reveals the beautiful truth of who God is and how loving he is and it reveals the beautiful truth of what it means to be saved by the good news the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the message Christian that has been given to you and to all of us in the world Choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. Choose his word. And watch your life become the way that God intended it to become and to change. You will bloom when you embrace the beauty of his word and the beauty of salvation. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day and this opportunity where we learn from Simon Peter. A man committed to you, Jesus, and to your church generations ago, who spoke very plainly and clearly about how you, Jesus, were the chosen one, the only one, the only one to be listened to because you are the only one who could save. And thank you that today, for those in this room and online, there are many Many who have turned their hearts to you. God, I pray even now for those who haven't. 
Father, I pray that your spirit will guide them very clearly into a saving relationship with you based on who you are and the revelation of your will through your word and through history and through Jesus to save them. Let your people not be lost in questioning or living the way that you did not intend for us to live. Let us embrace your truth and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I know as you read that passage, you probably didn't think there was a lot in there like we went through today. But that's why I wanted you as a Christian, particularly as you go into this Easter season, to think about the power of the truth of God's word and the power of the gospel. It's why this upcoming week I would invite you. Bring someone to Calvary. It's not just bringing someone to church. You're legitimately, practically opening the door for a conversation about God and Jesus. Especially if you bring them with you on Easter. Because guess who I'm talking about on Easter? It's not the Pope. It's not the President. It's Jesus. That's who saves. And that's who you and I know as our Savior. And that's who the world needs. He's the only one that can save. So use that tool. Thank you for being faithful with your giving, by the way. So I want to tell you some good news. January and February, I was like, man, I understand the world's in a hard place. But man, it was like budget giving was about half of what we needed those two months. I was like, okay. And, and part of me, the, the, the business side of me is going, man, what's going to happen here? But God just kept saying to my heart, you just stay faithful, you just be obedient, you continue to preach truth, and you begin continue to remind the church, be faithful in your tithes and offerings. March was phenomenal. <laughs> March, we gave to our, our budget, which helps us do all that you see. And by the way, what's the purpose of all the ministries around here? The business of the church is the gospel. So the reality is there's a lot of questions that sometimes people ask about the church. Well, what are you doing? How can I be involved? Get involved in the gospel. Let your life reflect the truth of his word. Bring somebody to Jesus. And the easiest way in your life may be bring somebody with you to church that needs Jesus. Don't bring me another disgruntled church member, okay? They need to stay in their own church, amen? Let's bring somebody to Jesus because he's the only one that can save. And the true litmus test of a growing Christian is someone who's in his word and someone who understands the beautiful truth of the gospel that they're willing to share that and give that to somebody else. I pray this week that as you go and get ready for your Easter season, those two truths will be at the forefront of your mind.